And then, the, you know, the critical rationalist sort of walks into the bar and just says, why do you fucking ask her? <laughs> like, just ask. Welcome to another episode of Increments. Uh, Vaden, do you ever get just criticized of being pompous for displaying all the books you've read on your website? <laughs> Dude, I'm about to get a, a frosted glass whiteboard that I'm going to put on the back of my Zoom, or on my wall. So it's going to increase the pomposity levels by maybe like 50, 60%. Like frosted glass, dude, that's going to be wild. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's the subject du jour? We had Mauricio Baker on finally, which was great. Um, you had introduced me to him. Uh, how did this whole thing get started? So... You had an excellent criticism of, like, long-termism and the precipice uh, that you laid upon me in one of the previous episodes, and I was barely ready to handle it um, and and uh, try, tried to respond. But then Mauricio wrote a response, I think, to that, to that episode, and then you two had a very fruitful, I think, uh, sort of essay exchange back and forth in which you fleshed out a lot of your disagreements and then we invited him on the podcast. Yeah. And so it was great to finally meet him. Um, if you haven't been following the probability episodes and the blog posts, or if you're not like already really into the existential uh, risk and effective altruism community, a lot of what we cover may seem like uh, it's a super deep cut, but if you are in there, you'll you'll I think you'll you'll get something out of it. It was a bit more of a debate style than I had anticipated, but fair enough. I guess that's how Mauricio and I had had met. So so there's a bit of a debate back and forth, and Ben is the, the excellent neutral moderator. Yeah, for sure. I think it's a good illustration of how these ideas actually influence people's actions on the ground, right? Like people's philanthropic efforts depend on how seriously they take various ideas. Um, and so your interpretation of probability really has some significant real world consequences. So whether that's terrifying or refreshing, I'm not sure, but, uh, <laughs> but, but it's there. Uh, one thing I do want to say, which uh, you and I had started talking about probability five, six weeks ago, maybe longer than that. And, uh, and just as an example, I chose Toby Ward and the existential risk community. Um, I didn't expect to be like the spokesperson criticizing this for the next <laughs> like uh, six weeks. So I, I didn't wake up one day thinking I'm going to take this community down. It was just a um, an example, and, and and but now it's fun. Like I've learned so much through through uh, discussion with with, uh, with him. So hopefully our audience gets something out of it as well. Yeah, you criticize the yam, bringing in the fucking troops, man. <laughs> bringing the cavalry. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that sounds good. Let's play play the episode, and hopefully, we get to Mauricio back uh, very soon. Before we dive into things, Mauricio, do you want to just give people a sense of what you're doing right now, what you're studying, and then maybe even how you got into effective altruism and what your role within EA is and what kind of things you like to think about. Um, and yeah, what's, uh, what's capturing your attention these days. Sure. Yeah. Maybe I'll start with how I got into effective altruism in high school, read a bunch of stuff from, uh, both animal welfare and rationality communities. And I found them super interesting for a while. I had no idea there were a bunch of people, trying to do the whole altruism things and effective things together, even though I was very excited about both separately. 
So in like senior year of high school, I bumped into some video from Giving What We Can along the lines of you could be a doctor in a first world country and that'd be great. Or you could be a doctor in a third world country or you could fund those doctors or you could get more people to fund those doctors. And it's like, wow, this is incredible. So a lot of like marginal contribution type thinking, right? Like you could be a doctor, but what are you marginally adding as a doctor as opposed to being able to like fund those kind of positions or something? Yeah, that's part of it. I think maybe what resonated with me even more strongly was the like trying super hard to make things better and really thinking about how to best do so when there's so many problems, so many ways you could go about trying to solve them and so little time and resources. So uh, then after that, I uh, read more stuff and then um, going to college, reached out to the group here to get involved. At Stanford, I've been helping to organize putting a lot of work toward an introductory fellowship to have um, a series of in-depth conversations with people to share these a lot of these ideas with other people in ways um, that carry forward the detail and nuance of these positions instead of spreading things in some really superficial way that uh, won't land mm-hmm. with people. And one other thing we've been working on has been the new Stanford Existential Risks Initiative, which um, started with a grant from, I think, OpenPhil um, and two professors who were teaching a class on preventing human extinction. And apparently there's a bunch of students at Stanford who are interested in doing research to help reduce existential or global catastrophic risks. So I've had the chance to help organize with that. And that's what I've been doing this summer too. With um, I was very curious about what might help future generations get politically included or represented in better ways than they are now, uh, how governments could be made less short-termist. Um, so I looked into how other groups w- that seem to have had very little power, like slaves or disenfranchised people, gained political power in the past. Nice. Yeah, very cool. So maybe uh, before we dive into more details, could you articulate the position around existential risk and why so why you think existential risk is a problem as as odd as that may sound and why is it a compelling problem for you to work on as opposed to something that people would more typically associate with altruism like just like working on global poverty or something so why do you think existential risk is possibly a more important problem to work on than sort of traditional uh, cause areas uh, within within altruism. Um, and so like, what, what did you find? So what arguments did you find the most powerful? Did you go through a moment where you like change your mind about how important the problem of existential risk is and just how this ties in with maybe population ethics and stuff, but just, yeah, would you be able to just sort of articulate the, the most powerful reason why you find working on existential risk to uh, compelling? I think an issue that comes up with a bunch of standard altruistic causes, um, say working on reducing poverty is people will do all this great work to help mitigate poverty. And then a year, a decade, or a century later, I'll leave back and the really great work they did in some time got washed away by, you could say, the sands of history. And they what they did had a great impact for a really little time. But one idea that I've come to see is very compelling is if we could have super longer and positive impacts, that'd be incredible. I think there's good arguments for thinking that just like how we don't 
devalue people just because they're farther away from us in space. It, mm. in some way, similarly doesn't make sense to devalue people just because they're farther away from us in time. And if we take this seriously, uh, if we start thinking with a lot of attention toward long-term impacts, um, a lot of things that traditionally seem great, start, it starts looking a lot less clear how good it is compared to other things we could be doing. If you help reduce poverty in some area, that obviously has amazing short-term impacts, but it, its long-term impacts on political, international development are, I'd say I'm, I'm pretty clueless about those. And you, you could easily have a long chain of unexpected impacts and indirect effects by which you end up something that seemed to have a great short-term impact. Its long-term impact is it almost has nothing to do with with how you chose the action in the first place. So there, there's all these actions that it's super hard to have an idea of what kind of impact they'll have in the long-term future. Existential risk is different. If we go extinct, it's pretty easy to figure out how that's going to impact the long-term future. There won't be people or whatever people would have created for the longer-term future. And there do seem to be concrete things we can do now to reduce existential risk. So I, I find that angle very compelling. And I was initially more focused on animal welfare issues. Nice. Okay. So to, yeah, to just try and summarize to make sure I'm on the same page, the reasoning process was something like, we want to have as much impact as as possible. And we want this impact to extend as far in the future as possible, because that will affect just many more people. Just the farther it extends in time, the more people it will affect. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if it's, if it's a good effect, um, we want that to propagate as long as possible. And so that's where the notion of trying to affect like the long run future comes from and possibly trying to impact like political institutions and stuff instead of focusing on short term impact, uh, like poverty, for example. And then you start asking the question, what sort of long run changes can we make or rather changes that affect the long run future? And it's really hard to to know because we, we can't predict the future. But one thing we know for sure is that if we were to go instinct, then this would be bad because it would it would, by definition, uh, put an end to all future happiness. And so because we don't know exactly what causes will benefit the future the most, at least we can try and make sure that that future exists. And so that's, is that sort of the case for working on existential risk in your mind? Did I uh, do an apt job of summarizing it? Yeah, I think it's a great summary. Sometimes people also um, try to improve the long-term future in ways other than preventing extinction. And this sometimes gets bucketed together with in, in this wider category of existential risk reduction. Like, for mm-hmm. example, trying to make it less likely that Improved surveillance technologies will enable totalitarian governments that can last super long, uh, for super long times while repressing opposition. Obviously, I'm being slightly coy because I do consider myself um, fairly involved with the EA community. And so I'm somewhat familiar with with the arguments for uh, focusing on long-termism, uh, as it's called, and, and uh, the arguments for various cause areas. But... Recently, I think I've started to diverge uh, from at least this group of thinkers who are really focused on existential risks and long-termism. And uh, I tend to consider myself more of like the Peter Singer style um, or interest rather in the Peter Singer style of effective altruism, which is kind of more along these short-term interventions that you mentioned and focusing on things that we have empirical evidence to support uh, uh, various ways of reducing poverty and 
increasing school attendance in, in third world countries and whatnot. And so there's definitely, I think, a, a slight rift in the community between those who are really interested in uh, long-termism and take these arguments that sort of rely on some sort of uh, probability very seriously, and then those who are more drawn to the uh, maybe more traditional forms of altruism. And so for me, I think what, what, what data was sort of, I find, yeah, the arguments for existential risk just shrouded in like so much uncertainty. And uh, Vaden did a lot to convince me on this front. So maybe I'll just let him jump in here and uh, start articulating the position that is uh, anti-existential risk, <laughs> or at least anti-focusing on existential risk, because uh, Vaden doesn't care about anyone in the future. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, let's make us extinct as quickly as possible. <laughs> no, well, so I guess before I, I uh, do that, I just want to say it's like nice to finally meet you, man, um, because for our audience who uh, probably doesn't know the backstory, um, Ben and I had a conversation about this, but actually a series of conversations um, where we discussed uh, the philosophy of probability. And then you wrote a excellent uh, critique of, I believe, our second conversation, where as a case study in what I will say in an opinionated fashion, the misuses of probability, I just almost arbitrarily chose the existential risk community. And so that uh, then got into the ears of those in the community. And you wrote a beautiful um, critique of, of a lot of what I was saying. And then that led to an exchange uh, over, I guess, the span of a month or two, hey, between you and I, and um, where we talked about a bunch of the stuff. And so people can go to my blog if they want to read the nitty gritty details. But um, but this is the first time we have met in person. So I just want to start by saying it's nice to speak to you in person, or as person as we could be given these times. Classic. I'm just jumping into the probability before Vaden can even introduce himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, I just want to say hi. Uh, and, and so, um, yeah, so, so your question is like, what's the anti- existential risk argument. Um, and before I, I get there, I guess the perspective that I'm coming from is one of a huge amount of sympathy and friendship and um, agreement with the EA and existential risk uh, community. So I'm, I'm by no means an antagonist or a, an outsider. I'm, I am one who has been influenced, not to the same extent as people within the community, but influenced by a lot of the thinkers within it. And I think that in general, the effective altruist movement is excellent. Uh, they're very data-driven. They care about taking a finite amount of resources and doing the most amount of good with those resources in the most uh, scientific and um, empirical way possible. I don't see that happening in the existential risk community, though. So to the extent that I can group these two as two different um, hemispheres of the same organization... I see one as being very uh, careful not to step too far away from the data and the other as stepping far away from the data under the assurance that what they're doing is so important that it's okay. And so specifically what I mean with the existential risk community is they will use probability in what I uh, will continue to argue an arbitrary way um, and then make decisions based on these arbitrary numbers which can lead to huge negative consequences. And so the, um, the like one of the big lessons that, that I learned from uh, William McCaskill is just that like in our attempts to do good, we can so quickly uh, do ill. Um, and that's why it's so important to continuously look at the data. But in the case of existential risk, there is no data that we don't have any numbers. We don't have any measurements to, to, uh, to look at. And so I think that we can quickly uh, become 
unhinged from reality and uh, forget the lessons from from McCaskill. And so I'll, I think I'll leave it there. Obviously, what I've said is uh, needing to be defended and explained. But before I go too much further into that, that's maybe my, my um, initial critique is that the existential risk lobe of the community seems to have stepped away from the data in a way that is quite troubling uh, to me. Nice. Yeah. So I guess instead of trying to resolve this dispute on the podcast, um, <laughs> because we tried to do that over many pages of uh, responses back and forth, uh, we should maybe just try and articulate the, the clearest positions out of both of you and then move on to different territory. Um, May I interrupt? Um, because I don't know how much of a dispute we still have. Um, perhaps the dispute is where it was at the beginning, but I haven't actually had the opportunity of just um, following up with you, uh, Mauricio, and, and see because in our long exchange, uh, there's many points of agreement, many points of disagreement. We may, seem to have made a lot of progress. And then I, I think, perhaps unfairly, killed the conversation quite, quite quickly. Uh, and, and, and so listeners can, can read the blogs to, to see what I'm referring to. But where are we in this discussion? Because I don't want to start by assuming there is the same disagreement that there was pre-blog exchange and pre uh, all these conversations. So, so I'm just curious kind of where your head's at. If, if um, you think I'm wrong in some specific ways, if, if you think that uh, we have converged a bit more than, than at the beginning, I, I guess I don't want to start by the assumption that we disagree if that might not be true. So yeah, I just want to say it's really great to see you in person <laughs> or face to face too. I learned a lot from our discussion. Uh, so thanks again. Great to be here. Yeah. I think I've definitely become more sympathetic to made uh, into your criticisms. Um, I realized in, in trying to defend expected value relations in a non-circular way that, that takes some pretty weird assumptions. So I'm definitely a lot less confident in this position than I was before. And I see it as much more possible that there's other approaches that could be better. I think it's still... I think I still largely buy the arguments and a lot of the approach of the community. Um, I, I do want to say that in even for single events that in that don't have a probability in the same sense that a coin flip does, you're still in some ways in, in a similar situation as other situations you or people will be in at other times. And um, if, if you're all making decisions in the same way, it seems useful to have a sense of uh, things sometimes go one way and things sometimes go the other way. I want to uh, put forward a different argument for than a lot of what we've talked about over the blog posts, which would be probability and expected value calculus aside. I feel fairly compelled by arguments about uh yeah, my specific arguments about existential risks, um, particularly risks from synthetic biology and um, irresponsibly created artificial intelligence being really important. And these arguments I want to spend at least the next few months thinking more about. Uh, probably not the best representative of these positions right now. But I think e even without, e even if we take the perspective that the way to figure 
out what to do when we're uncertain about stuff is we try to come up with a bunch of options and a bunch of arguments for why they're good or bad options. If that's, um, if I've understood your perspective on this, um, I, I think it still looks quite good for a lot of the actual work that's going on in the existential risk community. Totally. Yeah. Um, I think what you said was great, but it will be very insider baseball-y for most people listening. So I want to just provide a little bit of context for a lot of the uh, references, which which you mentioned. So you talked about expected value calculus. We talked about subjective, objective probability and making decisions. Um, and so I just want to back up a little bit and explain what, what you were talking about. Um, so the existential risk community is concerned with a number of issues. One is synthetic biology, um, creating bioweapons which escape the lab uh, and that causing mass extinction. Artificial general intelligence and the alignment problem is another huge, huge uh, focus. Um, the uh, risks associated with nuclear terrorism. So all of these are huge problems. Um, no, no doubt whatsoever that uh, a lot of time and thought and focus needs to be put to these issues. Uh, but then there's an extra move which tends to be made by uh, authors like uh, Toby Ord, which uh, is a big uh, uh, thought leader in this community. And that is to assign probabilities to each of these to say that the probability associated with unaligned AI taking over the world is uh, 30%. Say, I'm just going to make up a, a number. And this is what I'm saying is uh, a bad idea um, because unlike counting asteroids, asteroids are also an existential risk. When you count asteroids, you can get a probability and that's associate uh, that is derived from natural phenomena. I'm saying with volcanoes, you can, you can just count how many volcanoes um, have happened and then uh, use that to derive probabilities. Um, that is great. Using observations of reality uh, and abstracting those into numbers is what I do all day, every day. This is why I'm in machine learning. This is why I love the probability calculus because it's so powerful at um, taking complex phenomena and abstracting it into useful um, summaries, which we can then uh, make decisions based off of. So that is what uh, is referred to as objective probabilities because there's some object in the world that you can then summarize using probability. We can't do that with things like the future. Uh, because there are no things to count in the future when we only have one of them. And so in lieu of counting things, people tend to uh, say, well, let's just use beliefs, uh, but we can't just use any beliefs. Let's use the beliefs from experts because experts have better beliefs than the rest of us. Um, and so they just fill the slot where counts should be with numbers, which the, they then justify uh, as um, subjective probability. Uh, and so what I'm calling attention to is the fact that these two things are not equal and they should not be treated as equal and they're very different phenomena. And if we're going to make decisions, it matters a hell of a lot where these numbers come from. Um, and so that was the one point which, which you had made. Then the second thing you said was uh, expected value calculations. Again, I don't want to assume that people um, know what this means. Uh, simply the expected value is, let's say you have 10 outcomes each of them have various probabilities of uh, happening. Um, and if you act in uh, way one, then you're going to have different probabilities and different outcomes than if you act in way two. And because we don't know what is actually going to happen, um, we want to somehow uh, compute 
what is expected to happen by uh, multiplying the um, utility of whatever way, way you act with the probability of, of that action leading to a particular consequence. Um, so this is getting too technical, but the only thing I want to say is expected value calculations require as input probabilities. The probabilities are the fuel. They're the, the required uh, piece that you need to make these calculations. In the EA uh, community um, and the existential risk community, I argue that they're loading these expected values in very different ways, where the effective altruists are doing the hard work of counting, say, the number of bed nets, the probability associated with, associated with dying by malaria. They are collecting data, and then they're doing the hard work of figuring out where is the, um, the most value going to be. Uh, this can't happen in the uh, existential risk community because there's no, nothing to count. Um, and so instead, they use subjective probabilities to then make decisions. So everything I've said, I don't think is new to, to uh, us here, but but I did want to provide a bit of context for for the listeners. Mauricio, do you have any particular problems with the way he f- phrased things there? Or, uh, yeah, I'm just curious to know how you reacted to that. Um, if you have no general problems, then maybe it'd be nice to focus on one particular argument that Ord makes in his book, which I think might illuminate some of the disagreement between you both. Um, but otherwise, I'll just let you react to what Baden said there. Yeah, I think um, um, I also like your description of expected value. I think I'd want to say something like when when we give probability measurements for single-time events like is AI going to go really badly? Um, that there can be something to count, but what we're counting isn't as straightforward and not as directly relevant as it might immediately seem from saying something like 30% probability of AI. Uh, maybe it would be, um, maybe if you could bring up the code from Toby Ord you were thinking of, that could help on this a little more probably this is the one i was just interested in in sort of examining his argument where he's looking at what should he take the threat of maligned ai seriously and he starts he says he's explicitly focused on like what prior he should take right so he says a lot of people would start with a really low prior because it's a cause we haven't seen before but i think we should start more with a prior of one half and then only lower it in light of favorable evidence um, to to the case of that AI is is not a, a huge risk, right? Um, and so I'm aware uh, that Vaden and increasingly me has sort of a problem with this way of reasoning because it puts so much emphasis on numbers, on just like this cognitive state that you should inhabit, that you should have a prior to begin with, um, as opposed to just relying on on sort of the best argument available. Um, and so I'm just curious to know what you think of this style of reasoning in general, where you, you know, start with some number that's supposed to sort of capture your the information you have about a problem, and then you either increase it or decrease it in light of favorable or disfavorable evidence. Um, and so you could dive into that example in particular if you'd like, but just in general, the style of reasoning sort of with numbers, where you like start at some subjective prior and and then you change it based on things you see. 
does this does this sort of argument hold sway for you? Is this is this the kind of reasoning that you're adopting when you're convincing yourself that AI is something to be worried about? Or are you convinced more by a particular argument that that someone has made in the past about why we should be concerned with AI going going awry? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I generally um, I'm generally on board with this style of reasoning, at least in an implicit or rough way, uh, if not, maybe not with uh, actually cranking out numbers. Um, and I, I see that as very much connected to asking uh, to the question of whether there's particular arguments that have convinced me of this, since uh, what, how much you start off believing in something uh, seems important for how strong the arguments for a position have to be in order to convince you. I think the case for this kind of reasoning is more clear for when there is more straightforwardly things you can count. Uh, one classic example is if you're if you find out that someone is uh, either a librarian or a farmer, and you know that, and you also find out that they're an introvert, um, you you might ask yourself, well, how um, should I? expect this person to be a farmer or a librarian. Um, and the initial thought lots of people might have there would be, oh, well, introverts, uh, librarians are introverts, so this person's probably a librarian. But a uh, type of reasoning that I think would work better here is if you first ask yourself, how many librarians, how many farmers are out there in the first place? Um, and there's a lot more farmers than librarians. So even though the learning that someone's an introvert is a reason to think they're a little more likely to be a librarian. Um, you, with this low prior belief, you end up concluding something different and more accurate than you would have if you uh, wouldn't have used these prior beliefs. That was a great illustration of why this can get so um, confusing to talk about. Because in that uh, librarian farmer example, um, was conflated. Uh, counting things, so counting librarians and farmers with believing things, um, believing if they're introverted or uh, not introverted. And this is why uh, I'm so interested in the philosophy of probability because of how thorny and knotted it becomes, right? Where I have absolutely no problem saying, let's load up our prior based on career statistics of how many librarians and farmers there there are. Um, And then for the... Uh, likelihood, which is the likelihood of them being introverted or not introverted. We don't have good numbers, so I'm just going to use some 50-50 belief that they're, uh, or not 50-50, that um, librarians tend to be more um, introverted than farmers. And then so it goes. But there still counts at the end of the day in this example. And that's fine. We have to operate in an imperfect environment and, um, and Bayes' rule is so useful because it allows us to, to do that. But if the prior isn't about librarians and farmers, but um, do you think unaligned AI is going to uh, kill us or not? Then we have lost any tether to uh, reality because there's nothing to count at all. Uh, we're, we're completely beholden to just the opinions of others and what they say they believe and our own group, um, psychology kicks in where if everyone around me is terrified of AI taking over the world, then I'm going to obviously put a higher number there. But if I'm in a different 
community, for example, my lab, where nobody thinks that this is even a like plausible alternative because every day we realize just how stupid these bloody things are, um, then I have a totally different number that I'm going to use. And mine is as arbitrary as, as anybody else's. And so we need some neutral method of adjudication. Uh, and my positive proposal, so I don't want to just sit here criticizing without putting forth any alternative, um, is critical rationalism as described by uh, Karl Popper and, and, uh, and his, his uh, students. Um, the effective altruist and the existentialist uh, risk community doesn't need to do this because there is another option available to us. And this is why I, I see it so, I find it to be so perplexing that the same community that uh, warns of the dangers of not measuring the world, this is like one of the core points of McCaskill, right? Is like, we can't just assume in advance what uh, is going to be good. We need to check and that we have to make sure our altruism is effective. And how do we make sure it's effective? By measuring stuff, by counting things, by um, collecting data. It's the same community that uh, teaches this, that I've learned this from, is completely disregarding it when it comes to this other subject, because they think it's so important that uh, they have to do the impossible. Um, and, and so as an outsider, I'm very concerned that no one is recognizing this problem, um, especially those who have a huge amount of time and money uh, dedicated towards trying to make the world better. Um, they're, they're going to put their attention in the wrong place because they are not using the tools which they um, teach. Any, uh, any reaction to that? I think there's two, yeah, two things I want to argue in response to that. Um, and I definitely think, I think this is an um, important criticism and one people should think more about generally looking more for outside criticism. Um, this kind of group think is not something that um, effective altruists are much more immune to or any more immune to than any other community. So hearing this kind of stuff and, and thinking through it seems super important. I think that there's two broad reasons that are making me not be very convinced uh, and maybe also group think is contributing. One, I want to say even probability aside and made up estimates aside and surveys aside, um, I'm convinced by the arguments that trying to improve the very long-term future is very important and that trying to make AI go well is a particularly promising way of doing that. For both, I might want to say the strong arguments that uh, the best user time is if there are promising options for doing it, trying to make the long-term future no better. And that um, as my best guess right now, having um, thought through these things to some degree, is that making the economic, political, all kinds of impact of AI go better is um, the most promising way of doing that. The other angle I'd want to take would be I'm more mistake about the degree to which um, the kinds of arguments and surveys and priors that people in this community are using to estimate things like AR risks, that they are measuring important things, that there is something to count. What is being counted? Yeah. Um, to clarify? 
think one thing that seems useful to count. So, um, le- like you are, are you basically there's um, not a very straightforward sense of probability for just uh, will AI go here since it's going to go some way or not. But this is not the only time that people are in high stakes situations that are very confusing. It's not the only time that people are facing big dangers or new risks and um, among deep uncertainty. Backing up a little, something um, some people in effective altruism and especially the long-term risk community try to do and put a lot of attention toward is uh, improving your forecasting or learning about forecasting. And it turns out that uh, a bunch of people are easily able to roughly, if they say something has a 70% chance of happening, um, the category of things that they say has a 70% chance of happening, about 70% of those things happen. So if you can do that reliably and you're in a kind of situation uh, that's not totally unique, there'll be other situations where humans face big uncertain risks. If we can identify, I'm in this kind of situation um, and out of all these similar situations, this proportion of them um, will have say, something bad happen. Then counting something that's useful to count, because if these all these people in similar situations are thinking on similar lines, they all want to um, avoid these really big downsides, but not at very large costs, like totally slowing down technological development. Then the kinds of decisions that, that you make here and the decisions that other similar situations make will largely be the same in response to um, some collection of arguments and observations uh, that leave very much unclear. If, if you identify, I'm in a kind of situation where 30% of the time things go badly, and there's all these other people at different times or places who are going to be in this similar situation, then uh, this means we'll all uh, collectively be better off if we act in this way or in that way. Um, so I believe you're referring to the super forecaster, um, example. And, uh, so again, for the, for the, uh, the audience, um, Philip Tetlock wrote this book called super forecasters and, uh, Scott Alexander, the, uh, blogger for slate star codex does this, uh, annual post, which is similar, uh, where you ask a bunch of people questions about the future. Um, and then you ask them to also provide a uh, certainty estimate. So um, question one, is the stock market going to be higher in five years than it is today? Uh, I might say yes, and I might put a certainty estimate of like 99% on that. And question number two, is uh, AI going to um, produce translation technology in 10 years? And I may be very uncertain about that, so I may say uh, no, and put an uncertainty level of say 0.5, um, which basically just means, I don't know. Um, and then you can aggregate up all these, uh, questions and then you can see if every time I say, I don't know 50%, if I really don't know, and it's just random. Um, and every time I say 99% confidence, if I get those approximately 99%, um, correct then you can start to calibrate your subjective feeling of confidence um, against uh, how often you're, you're correct, right? So this is your response to my question of uh, like, what is there to count? And, and so what we're counting are essentially quiz questions where I think there's a bit of a red herring here because it's not actually about the future. 
because you can get the same thing about questions about the past. Um, just questions about the past that I don't know about. So I could ask, um, did Germany invade Belgium or France first in World War II? Um, I actually don't know the answer to that. I think it's Belgium, but I could assign some probability score uh, and then I could look up the answer and I could still learn the same thing about uh, myself, right? And so it's it's calibrating. Um, when I say I think I know something and then I assign a number to it, how often am I right? But it's nothing about predicting the future, first of all. You can ask it about the future and then you could wait but you could ask it about the past and anything that I don't know, um, and I'll find the same same thing. Uh, but sorry, you, you want to respond? Yeah, keep him here. I'm not sure I quite understand um, the point you're making here. It seems that, hmm. sure, you could ask questions about the past, and then they'd be about the past instead of the future. But if you're asking them about mm-hmm. the future, then um, your accuracy in these questions reflects some accuracy of knowledge about the future, it seems like. Of course. but but um, So the point that I'm making is that this isn't giving us... Uh, probability of future events in the way that we want it to, right? Because um, the reason we bring up the super forecasters example is to say, well, yeah, yeah we can't get a prop, we can't count the future, but we can count people's views on the future and then aggregate all those, those up, right? Uh, and I'm saying that we're not actually learning anything about the future. We're learning um, things about people's views about statements, which can be about anything. And so we're learning about people's views first uh, of all, not the future. And the second point that I'm making is that if I then ask all of these super forecasters really difficult questions about the future, what they're going to say is, I don't know with all of them. And that will be perfectly in line with them being a super forecaster. So uh, there are some things that are quite obvious about the future and some things which are quite uncertain. Uh, The AI example is one that I would say is very uncertain. Um, And a super forecaster, if they're a a good one, will just assign 50% probabilities to all of those difficult questions, right? Because they don't know. <laughs> and so it's not as if the uh, the White House, upon needing to know if the war in Iraq is going to be successful, if they get a bunch of super forecasters and ask them. Uh, the, like, we don't have some prophetic group that can tell us the unknowable in the future. And super forecasters are just those who are particularly calibrated and are particularly cautious to say they don't know when they don't know. That's that's all that's happening. Um, and there is no magic ball which can see into the future as much as we would like one. And I say this as someone who always advises young uh, data scientists not to try to, say, predict the stock market or predict global events because we can't do it. It's, like it's, it's impossible to do. Um, so everyone wants to get away around this and find some way to predict the future. But it cannot be done. Um, and super forecasters don't get us that. That's my main point. I think you make a good point about the, how even super forecasters, there's a bunch of stuff they can't predict. And, and if they're very careful to say, I don't know, I don't know, 50%, 50%, 50%, then they will be good super forecasters. Right? That, that will be, by definition, uh, a, a really super forecaster. If they split the world into only that, which is like uh, epsilon away from 100%, and that which is epsilon away from 50%. So it's they only will answer those questions which are like 100% or like 50%, then they will still be super forecasters. Um, and, and, and so we don't get something for free here. We can't just start predicting the future by getting a bunch of people in a room and asking them to aggregate their, their subjective belief states. Yeah, so I think I'd want to say even there, it seems that you are learning useful things about the future in the... 
other cases, uh, like you said, you, you do only um, judge or label super forecasters based on what when their predictions about things that are by then in the past, and by then you can uh, see whether they were right or wrong. Um, but if you do, as people often do, this thing of, well, this things work like this in the past, so you can expect it to happen similarly in the future. If people's views about what was then the future were accurate or decently accurate in the past, it seems reasonable to expect that um, similarly formed views in the present about what is now the future will be decently accurate. And this seems like learning useful things about the future. In, in the other case where people are either saying, I don't know, 50% or judging where it's very obvious things, um, what that does seem to tell you is, well, you're in a situation um, that's similar to other situations and hard to tell apart from other situations where um, of these situations, about ha- in half of these situations, some particular thing happens. Um, so that seems like counting something usefully. And if you want to, say, make a bunch of decisions over a long period of time, or if you also care about the decisions that others are making in, deci- in situations similar to yours, it seems that knowing this count of in this kind of situation that looks similar, uh, this kind of thing happens about half the time, you're counting, you're learning. Uh, I'm reminded of Heraclitus when he says you can never step in the same river twice because you're not the same man and it's not the same river. There is never the same situation. <laughs> like This is what people talk about when they say the reference class problem or, or whatever. But it is not possible to say that in the future, we're going to be in the same situation as the past because things are entirely different. Um, <laughs> like there is an infinite number of possible ways that you could compare to um, periods of time. And in some of them, they could be seen to be similar and others, they could be seen to be different. Uh, but the vantage point, which you want to bring into the situation is an assumption, an unstated one, but it's an assumption. And that assumption is as, let's just say, the numbers that you draw from this um, will be entirely dependent on what you consider to be a same situation. Like, would you say that the onset of World War One was the same situation as the onset of World War Two? Well, in some, some views, you could say that they were, that the European countries were accelerating to prepare for war. But another perspectives they're completely different before going into uh, some of those other points you made uh, i'd be curious how you how you think about what at what odds would you be willing to bet that a coin will land on heads uh if i know it's a fair coin if or you look at it and it seems like a fair coin and someone told you it's a fair coin 50 percent given that i have been told uh, that i know that it's fair uh, why oh uh because I have a explanatory theory about the property of the coin. And I also have a theory about the fact that when a human hand flips it, all of the various features in the hand that we can't possibly understand, and the wind and the air pressure, um, all of that can be abstracted into a random variable, uh, which we can approximate. So we can approximate the physical processes, which we don't understand, using a random number. Uh, and particularly, it's a Bernoulli with 50% probability. Um, the reason I uh, would do this is because I have knowledge about the problem and I have a theory which says it is appropriate to abstract this complex, these complexities into a random variable. And so that's why. 
And how do you get from that to betting at one-to-one odds? Betting at one-to-one odds? Oh, because I think that each of these two outcomes are uh, equally likely given the knowledge I have, and I don't have any preference for one or the other. And I think that the outcomes are all going to be the same, depending on if it's heads or tails. And so I don't have any way to split the difference. And so one-to-one is like the, the null hypothesis, the default state. And if, if you had a die, and um, a fair die, what, what odds would you bet that it lands on one or two? I don't know where you're leading me, but I'll keep, keep answering the questions. Um, if I have a fair die, and there's uh, six possibilities, and I am asked to assign a probability to two of the six possibilities, um, and if it's fair, all the same arguments about uh, theories that allow us to abstract physical phenomena into random variables apply here. Um, and so I would bet at one and three odds. Or I always forget how the betting thing works, but 33% chance that it's going to be a one or a two. Or, yeah, thanks for humoring me. W- what I'm trying to get at is, I think, to, to go from some explanatory understanding of how things work to some degree of willingness to act when you don't know things happen um to do that in, in a precise manner which um you seem to be using if you go from coin flip to one-to-one um or a die roll to whatever you want to do um so one thing um a- a- as you said you were doing you're even though you're in a situation that's in some ways unprecedented probably no one's on earth has rolled it down the exact way you're rolling it um you can think about the situation, figure out that as best as you can guess, it's most similar to these other situations, and um, have some willingness to act and accept costs based on that. If you have a well-calibrated forecaster who said something has a 30% chance of happening, this, this situation seems to be different in degree of similarity, but not a totally different situation from the other one, where situ- other situations you face might be not quite as similar, but you can still think about your situations and all the things that led you to believe this had a 30% chance of happening, make the situation similar to other situations in which the same person would sign a 30% chance. And in a similar way as what you seem to have been doing in going from these um, estimates of what happens in similar situations to some particular ratio of cost to benefits that you're willing to take, depending on whether something goes poorly or well? If, if I can uh, respond, because I didn't say that I would consider similar situations um, and use that to inform my decision. Uh, I was careful there, actually, because it's about um, having a theory of errors um, that there's all sorts of factors at play um, with my hand, with the um, uh, the air in the room, uh, and all sorts of, of noise, which I theorize will cancel out in a way that can be approximated using the probability calculus. I did not say that it's about thinking of other people in similar situations, um, because uh, with die and with uh, coins, these um, are unique situations where we are able to approximate the physical phenomena with probability. With the dice, 
example, if I had high precision lasers and I knew the exact motion of the hand, and if I had this information, I wouldn't use probabilities anymore because I would be able to get a better prediction of what um, the outcome is going to be. At all points, there is a physical process which is being approximated with a random variable, and that's okay, provided we're very careful to be explicit about the assumptions that we're making. Um, and this is why probability is able to be used in, in these circumstances. Um, the same can't be said about the way that, say, Ord is trying to use probabilities in the future. And I must emphasize, again, that to give up probabilities is not to give up a concern about the future. Um, if I may ask you a direct question, what is the worry about being a bit more judicious about our use of probability, because we can preserve everything that we care about. Um, we can preserve our interest in existential risk, and we can preserve our concern about the future generations, and we can preserve our um, concern, say, bioterrorism as a, and nuclear terrorism. It's just that we don't have to um, detach ourselves from uh, data about the real world. I think it'd be mostly fine for the existential risk community to give up its current use of probabilities. One area where it does seem really useful to back up a little, there were some experiments mm-hmm. where people were asked what to do in situations with lots of uncertainty, um, hypothetical life and death situations. So people were asked to choose between the same two outcomes, but the framing was different. One framing emphasized positives and another framing emphasized negatives. In, in both these cases, 70-ish percent of people who were asked the question uh, chose one answer. But what action people wanted uh, what action was favored by the 70% totally changed based on what what the framing emphasizes. seems to matter a lot for whether people are really scared of taking risks or very ready to take risks. And one thing that finding expected values does that seems very helpful is it gets rid of that problem because you're not relying on some intuitive, confused notion of what should you do about risk. You're approaching it in this more or less systematic way. Um, that doesn't let these irrelevant things like framing have such an influence on your decisions. Oh, that's fascinating. I um, I want to observe two things. First is that all three of us are very um, uh, alive and receptive to the uh, the myriad of different ways that human beings can trick ourselves. Um, the first part of your, your, your uh, example is just talking about how if you frame things in one way versus another way, we're like our psychology is so fickle, um, so easily uh, deceived, and the expected value calculus, I don't think gets us out of this. It just builds upon it in a way that makes it seem as if we're gotten out of it. But when you actually go to do the expected value calculus, you have to write down a bunch of probabilities and a bunch of utilities, and in so doing, all of your biases and group foibles is just now materialized on the page in the very instance that you're writing down these numbers you are quantifying uh superficially um all of your psychological uh uh, biases and i'm not saying that i'm above this at all i'm saying that my view uh takes that as a given um and builds a view that tries to be resilient to that but expected value calculus doesn't get around this fact it just pretends as if it's gotten around it through the use of numbers, but it's all just baked into the numbers that you, that you use. Um, and, and so it's, it's much better to say, you know what? Uh, I'm probably under the sway of um, my peers and I'm, 
probably as biased as Kahneman tells me I am. And so, you know what? I should just explain really clearly to um, my friends what I think they should do or I should do and ask them to criticize the living shit out of everything that I said and uh, rely on the fact that they are going to be a little bit better at pointing out all the mistakes that I've made than I am myself going to be able to point out these mistakes. If I say, no, no, let's just, um, I'm biased. And so instead of talking to my friends and asking them to like help me reason, I'm just going to use the expected value calculus. I'm going to go in a dark room and write down a bunch of numbers and mechanically make a decision. You haven't gotten past the error. The, the bugs in the system are still there. You've just written it down. And maybe by writing it down, you can start to reflect and refine your, yourself. And so I'm not disparaging writing, but I am saying that uh, expected value calculus doesn't get out of the problem which you so uh, excellently illustrated at the beginning of your, your previous response. Yeah, I think your point makes a lot of sense for issues where where the probabilities are so nebulous and these other biases could so easily inform what we give. Mm -hmm. uh, I think mm -hmm. the case for using expected values is much clearer where we have clearer senses of what probabilities are. Totally, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, which is why I'm like, I'm totally down for doing expected value calculus when everything's well-defined, when we have measurements, when we have the numbers that we can rely on. And that's why it works so well with like reinforcement learning and uh, and in, in cases where we have data and it's all well-defined and like, hell yeah, let's use expected value calculus in that circumstance because obviously it's it's optimal in in uh, in these very limited cases. But we have to deal with the messy case uh, when it we don't have these numbers given to us. Uh, and in that case, I see this tool, expected value calculus, and I think we need to put that back on the shelf. That isn't the one that I should be deploying in this circumstance because it doesn't work. And all I'm advocating is to recognize that it's one of many tools. It's not some infallible fount of wisdom that will always tell us what course of action to take, um, which is how I'm seeing it used on, say, like uh, Miri and um, in the Less Wrong uh, blogosphere, uh, etc. Before going further down this the conversation, I want to jump back to some of the things we were talking about earlier with the coin flip and dies. Yeah, thank you for clarifying there that you weren't um, using similarity to other situations to figure out the probability where you are implicitly using similarity to other situations is in translating that probability into action or into uh, choices about which mm -hmm. actions mm -hmm. seem best. In order to go from a uh, die has a one in three chance of landing on one or two. Uh, in order to go from that to I'm willing to bet at one or two odds, uh, the best sense I can make of that is you're thinking about what um, you're realizing that you in this situation are very similar to yourself in other situations where you're betting on um, on other dice or other coin flips where you, as best as you can tell, things have this probability of occurring. And the action that'll make you across all these situations or even other people in very similar situations have um, the best outcomes will be betting along with these odds. If, if you're not thinking about very similar situations, then it's not clear to me how you can get to something like being willing to bet at one or two odds. Because you could say, well, it's a single event, what the coin flip happens, uh, what how the die gets rolled this time. This die has never been rolled in this particular way. It'll either land on a one and a two, or it won't. And why should that lead me to bet at one to two odds? Um, I don't think I need to use similar situations. I just need to uh, use 
physics of the die and my knowledge of physical laws uh, and my understanding of random variables and how they can abstract uh, and aggregate errors from a bunch of different factors in a way that will cancel out. So if, it, if you gave me the first pair of dice that have ever been rolled and I look at them and I see that they're a cube uh, and that the hand that's throwing it is throwing it in a way that is approximating randomness, then I don't need to know anything about other people throwing dice to know that the outcome is uncertain enough that I shouldn't favor one outcome any more than the other. So the similar situations thing is in my vernacular, just summarized using the word laws of physics, right? Like I know that we all presumably have the same laws of physics and we know stuff about um, the physics of, of tossing and that's all I need, right? I don't need to have been told that a hundred thousand people also have thrown these dice and uh, when they have done it, these outcomes have occurred. And therefore, uh, because a fraction of those outcomes, one six of those outcomes are six, uh, then I'm going to make it odds. I, I, I can do it without that knowledge, uh, I, just using laws of physics and, and knowledge of, of how a toss works. But let, let me just even say, let's just say I do have to use similar situations because you're going somewhere with this and I'm really curious to know where you're going. And so I, I maybe getting stuck on this micro point is, is less valuable than, than saying, let's just assume that that's true. And, and I'm really curious to see where you're going, going with it. My argument is that betting on a coin is an important place, similar to betting on what a forecaster says. In both cases, there's just one thing that's going to happen, right? And it'd be great if you could know precisely what would happen, but you don't. In, in the case of the coin, you don't know what's going to happen this particular time. You don't have your high-resolution lasers. But you do know that when people bet that the coin will land on heads, they win half the time. So if you want to do the kind of thing that'll make you win overall, if you bet on a bunch of coins, then the thing to do is to have a willingness to bet that's high in proportion to how often betting on heads wins. And by willingness to bet, I mean how much do you risk losing relative to how much you could win. The point is, it makes sense to risk bigger losses if you're making a bet that more often pays off. Similarly, let's say you're thinking about betting on something that forecasters make forecasts about. Let's say you hear from a well-calibrated group of forecasters that they assign a 70% probability to some outcome. You still won't know whether it'll happen or not. But you do know that when people bet on outcomes that well-calibrated forecasters assign a 70% chance to, they wouldn't 70% of the time. So if, again, you want to do the thing, the kind of thing that'll make you win overall, if you bet on a bunch of forecasted events, then the best way to do that is to have a willingness to bet that's high in proportion to the estimate made by these forecasters. And this is, for practical purposes, using their estimate as a probability. Maybe it's useful to just like abstract the general concerns away here. And I think um, try and identify like a core difference uh, between your two beliefs. Um, and I think that is the following. I think Bayesianism and sort of the approach that Mauricio is advocating is highly concerned with the importance of internal belief states. So you're really concerned about people forming beliefs which try and accurately represent the future and its various possible avenues and values um and you're really concerned about gathering evidence 
in order to have the best belief states in order to and, and judging your um, judging bets on future and past events in order to try and calibrate belief. Um, and then there's this notion of like trying to rely on those with ha- that have this the best calibrated belief um, and try and use them in order to inform you about how to best go how, about what action to take in the future. I think Baden's approach um, and that advocated by sort of like the Popper and Deutsch crowd just throws out this reliance on internal belief states entirely and just says, just sort of adopts human fallibility as central to the view and just says, we don't care about your internal belief state. Like we don't care how well calibrated you are. What we care about is the best explanation you have as to what the current situation is, whatever we're trying to figure out. I don't care how accurate you were in the past um, because your accuracy could be, it could be random. It could be based on information you had about those past events that you don't have about this future event. Um, If it was based on some good explanation, then great. Tell me about that explanation. Don't tell me about how, how well calibrated you were in the past. And so I think there's this fundamental distinction between caring about like the reasons behind the arguments and the explanation that's underlying why you believe certain things and then the actual just belief states themselves. Um, And so I think you see this in the tension where Ord is like he's starting with the he's starting with the importance of a internal belief state. So he's saying, I don't even know how to get anywhere if I if I can't I need to start with this prior of one half in order to start navigating in this in in the landscape of AI and its risks. Whereas someone like Deutsch would just say, I don't what does even having an internal prior mean? I don't care. Like what's your best reason as to why AI is a risk? So I guess I'm just curious as to whether you both think that is a feature. Have have I identified something, a crucial difference between these two worldviews um because i think it's it's often hard especially in specific arguments to put your finger on like what is going wrong and like why these two communities of people have a hard time talking to one another and i'm beginning to think this is part of the reason it's it's just a difference of perspective on what's important in a given moment um and so yeah i'm just curious if, if you both want to react to that i'll say something very briefly which is i think that's exactly 100 spot on um totally i would strengthen my side slightly which is to say that i actively think focusing on beliefs is the wrong thing to do it's not that i'm neutral between these two it's that i used to focus on beliefs i used to be a devotee of uh, yukatsuki but but i'm no longer because i think it can mislead and i think that you are uh your use of the word reasons is exactly right because when I say that I'm a fan of reason, what I mean is give me the reasons to to, to argue for reason and rationality and to want to be less wrong um, is to implicitly value arguments and reasons. And the uh, focus on belief states, I think, was a um, unfortunate misdirection that this community took um, and that's part of my interest in having these conversations is because I think that steering it back to arguments and explanations will do a lot of good um, in the world. I'm a little surprised by your response there because what I was thinking 
or my initial reaction was that this seems like a difference emphasis, but from the way I'm thinking about it, it doesn't feel fundamental. Maybe because from the perspective of caring about having accurate beliefs, arguments and reasons are super helpful for that. Yeah, to elaborate a little, the way I currently see it is that beliefs and belief states are something that gets significant amount of attention. But uh, say in Toby Ord's book, that was what one chapter out of seven and the rest are arguments about existential risks that humanity faces. Lots of, say, the conversations going on in the 80,000 hours podcasts or in the discussions I've had uh, within the say, the Stanford Effective Altruism community. Um, sometimes they use belief states as a way to attempt to be sort of precise about how much we disagree. And at its best, I think, to prompt further conversation to figure out what good arguments we haven't considered. Uh, but I, I don't have the impression that this focus on belief has come at major expense of argument. Totally. Um, I should clarify, you are 100% right. I think in one of the conversations with Ben, I said that um, the like this is used Ord's book as an example that the majority of it is filled with with arguments and excellent buttons, but then the reliance on subjective probabilities and Bayesianism, uh, Bayesian epistemology, is a reliance and a emphasis on beliefs. And so, uh, if I was to wave my magic wand and take the existential uh, risk and effective altruist community and just remove the Bayesian epistemology piece, um, it would be great. Um, and so that obviously is a, uh, a small subset of all of the thought and actions and, and um, uh, uh, focus on the community. And so you're totally right that this is by no means uh, the only thing that they talk about, but this is the, the fuel that allows people to put in arbitrary numbers and, be okay with it um, is they put it in and say it's a belief, but it's a super powerful belief. It's a belief from a super forecaster or an expert or some thing that is pretty much as good as counting asteroids. I mean, it's a subjective probability and we'll say at the onset that subjective probabilities are not as good as objective probabilities, but we're just going to continue to do it anyways. And so the comparison to uh, Vaslav Smeal's book, I think, is one that is really valuable because he too is cares about existential risks. He just refuses to make that extra move um, of using uh, subjective Bayesian probabilities. So uh, the emphasis on belief states is, I would say, a consequence of the extreme Bayesianism uh, of Bostrom and Yukowski uh, in particular. Um, and then the influence that that has had on the rest of the community. But you're absolutely right that so much more goes on um, that that I can't just make a blanket statement. Thank you for uh, forcing me to clarify. Yeah, yeah, I definitely wouldn't say that style of reasoning is utterly ubiquitous, but I think it is fairly prominent. So two examples come to mind. One is uh, the table in the precipice, which gives probabilities both for um, anthropogenic and non-anthropogenic risks. And it sort of bundles the objective probabilities and the subjective probabilities together. And so this puts at the forefront what his belief is in the risk of certain disasters. And this is obviously a number now that's like thrown around a lot in the community. And so that's like explicitly prioritizing Toby Ord's belief 
in certain risks. Um, but I think the other more subtle one is something that you see on the forum a lot where people will make a lot of arguments about a certain subject or in favor of a certain position and use the multitude of arguments as an argument itself. So I've seen many times where people will say like, well, there's there's reasons like one, two, three, four, five for believing in this. And even if none of them are like really strong, the fact that there's a lot of them implies that um, there's a bunch of different reasons for possibly believing in it. And together, this somehow combines into something that's more than the sum of its parts into like a strong argument for believing this. Um, and so anyway, so this style of reasoning, I think, places places implicit importance on this notion of like having a prior in your mind and letting arguments like push a prior in a specific direction, right? So you're not like utterly convinced by any of the arguments and you're certainly not looking for the best argument in this position, right? You're just looking for a bunch of arguments and like the weight of the evidence in any direction. And so that's what, um, and that's having the Bayesian prior in your mind that's being sort of pushed around by various arguments. And so this style of reasoning, I think is is not very common in many communities, but it's certain I've seen it um, feature quite uh, quite often in the in the EA community. So, yeah, those are just two examples that come to mind that I think sort of demonstrate this implicit reliance on this sort of Bayesian reasoning. Um, maybe you think that's an unfair critique, though. I don't. I don't know. I agree that it's prominent in, in discussions. Yeah. Anyway, so that's a dividing line, I guess, between these two communities that I'm slowly becoming aware of. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, another example, which uh, is sort of unfair to you, but I think is which is worth pointing out, um, is that so in the in your thought experiment, we were talking about the farmer and the librarian. You could like argue all day about what prior is sort of the most appropriate thing to have. Um, and you can imagine like a bunch of Bayesians sitting in a bar arguing about like what prior we should have beforehand. And then you know, in light of new information, to what extent should we update uh, the prior? And then, you know, what's the posterior? And she's a librarian. And then, the, you know, the critical rationalist sort of walks into the bar and just says, why do you fucking ask her? <laughs> like, just ask whether it's a librarian or not. And this is obviously meant to be harsh to to the Bayesians and and very unfair. But I think it actually does get at a, at a sort of a crucial distinction between the two communities. One is just people who are like, we don't care where the ideas come from. We don't care what sort of internal belief states you hold. We just want to go generate a bunch of ideas and, and criticize the, the hell out of them until we're left with a, the best idea standing. Whereas the Bayesians are very, in, they're very concerned about sort of the intermediary belief states that you hold not necessarily about how you might go criticizing or refuting those belief states but just like the, having the most accurate belief states in the moment well i wouldn't say that seems like a good criticism of naive applications of this basism which maybe are more common than they should be and i think it makes sense to um be concerned with belief states and how you start up leading something and different things present in different ways. And also be uh, very enthusiastic about getting your beliefs and arguments relentlessly criticized to better inform them. I can depend the Bayesian a little bit here. Like, uh, um, I love that that uh, distinction, Ben. Um, and I love it so much that I feel like I should switch sides just temporarily because I think that the, um, the good counterpoint is that the librarian or farmer is a metaphor or not a metaphor it's it's an example that 
is meant to reflect the situation when you don't have the option of asking. Yeah, they're not there. Right? Where, exactly. where we're trying to, to make a belief about the future where we can't ask them. And so I would imagine that the, the, the Bayesian would say here, well, obviously we're going to ask them. Yes, but, but this is just a silly thought experiment about um, the situation where we can't ask them. Um, and then, then what do you do? But your, your central point still remains, now I'm going to switch back to my, my own side, uh, which is that the emphasis is what should you believe when you, I'm going to use slightly different terminology, what should you believe when you don't know, right? Um, so that not being able to ask them thing is a stand-in for when you don't know. And the critical rationalist would say, not what's the best belief to have, but what are the tools that we have that will allow us to find out so to argue against my argument against your thought experiment. It's like, well, asking is a tool. It's a tool to find stuff out, right? And that's why the critical rationalist focuses on the asking component. And so um, in the absence of asking, uh, we still have other tools available to us to try to find stuff out and figure out the world and figure out what the hell is going on. Um, And that's where the focus is and should be, uh, which is learning, which is trying to gain knowledge, which is trying to learn the truth, uh, seek the truth, get one step closer to reality. Um, and it's not on beliefs. It's not given that we can't find it out. What should we believe about it? It's how the hell do we start figuring this, this crazy world out? Um, and so I think your, your, your emphasis was excellent. Um, and even upon defending both sides, the central point still totally remains. I wonder how much of that comes from the um, emphasis or the purpose that the effective altruism community has in these of to figure out as best as they can uh, how how to do the most good. Where inside that seems important to me is if, even if you know a ton of stuff, it's often really not obvious how to turn that knowledge into good decisions. And that's where these kinds of ideas seem helpful. Um, I'm still confused about why decision making is such a focal point in the EA community. Like upon rereading the blog series, I started with a comment about probabilities without measurements. And then we quickly moved to a discussion of decision-making, which was super fascinating. And I learned a lot about that subject through, through talking to you. But it always, at the end of the day, felt like a distraction from my central concern. And I am confused about why the decision-making component is so fundamental to this way of thinking? Well, I think it's just prominent in the community because it's community that's values actual action, right? So they don't want to just armchair philosophize and generate a bunch of possible ways to improve the world. They have resources um, and they want to know how to best utilize those resources in order to do as much good as possible. And so that involves a constrained optimization problem where you have limited resources and you have to allocate them in some way. And so they need to make decisions about how to allocate them. That's, uh, I think it just comes down to the, the practicality of the philosophy. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, I wish I had that insight months ago. That, that's <laughs> excellent. Yeah, that's pretty much what I'd say. Um, okay. it, it often seems helpful when confused about something to ask yourself, what do I want this thing for? Like to go on a tangent, sometimes when people are confused about or arguing about free will, uh, that debate seems to get worked out much more easily if people are clear about i want some kind of will that can do this thing and that or that lets me do this thing um then it's much more straightforward 
uh, what ways are useful ways of thinking about this thing you're confused about. Um, in our case, we're confused about beliefs or probability. Um, so keeping in mind the point, the point of making good decisions might be helpful. Interesting. I, I think the uh, question of essentially motivated reasoning. Um, am I arguing and believing in a certain thing because I want a certain outcome? If I interpreted your comments on free will correctly, it's like it's, it's useful to think what I want from this set of views as a way to see if I'm motivated in a certain direction. Am I incentivized to hold a certain set of beliefs because of some deeper set of beliefs that I want to hold on to? So simple example of what I'm trying to say is creationism is a easy example where like it's not that creationists really care too much about Darwinian evolution. Um, it's that they really care about God and the afterlife and like where their dead kids are. Um, and if they give an inch on the Darwinian evolution point, then all of the other beliefs um, that they really do care about start to become un unwound. And I would argue that this is what's happening with the EA ER existential risk uh, community in the sense that they want to be able to make decisions. And the only tool they have um, at their disposal to do this quantitatively is expected value calculus. And therefore, they're motivated to hold on to this view of probability come hell or high water because they think that if they give it up, then how are they going to make decisions to improve the world in this chaotic, crazy place? Which is why I wanted to propose an alternative to say that um, one doesn't have to give up the thing that one really cares about, which is making decisions and making the world better. One doesn't have to give that up because one can hold on to that and use a different philosophical lens that importantly isn't tethered to a paradox and something intrinsically paradoxical, which I mean the subjective view of probability. And I like your free will example a lot um, because I would suggest that's what is happening in this circumstance. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I'd been um, actually had a different angle in mind, but really good point. Uh, that was one area where I'm reading about your thoughts on this changed my mind maybe the most, that there are systematic-ish ways of making decisions uh, that don't touch all this expected value stuff. And dude, it's so liberating. It's so liberating. I don't need to argue about dice when I'm arguing that people should, say, care about synthetic weaponry. <laughs> I, I, I don't need to go there because I can just talk about the uh, dangers of biological terrorism. Just focus on that issue and we can talk about what we know about biological weapons and the ease with which they could be made and distributed. And we can focus on this issue. We can learn about it and we can discuss how to remedy it. And I don't need to talk about pulling balls out of urns, rolling dice and alternative universes and all of the stuff which the conversation quickly moves to. Uh, and then we're not discussing the subject at hand. We're not figuring out how to prevent laboratory leaks because we are burning hour after hour arguing about if there are parallel universes upon which we can premise our view of probability. And this is why I am not a fan of McBostrom, because he makes these uh, intellectual finger traps that you just get stuck in thinking about definitions of probability when we should be dealing with the hard facts about biological weapons and what are their consequences? How do we stop it? 
what is a reasonable policy to put in place, given that we also need to have research along these lines. Like we can focus on that issue, um, but we don't because we spend time arguing about expected value calculus and think about the pure opportunity cost. Think about how much more safe we would be if we had written a giant series of blog posts talking about one of these issues in particular and collecting the best research and arguments um, and evidence we could to understand this. This is why I don't like anchoring um, real world concerns to these philosophical uh, straitjackets that just get you spun in these like things that are so detached from things that are actually probably going to kill us. Um, we, we just lose sight of the objective and the objective is to learn about things that are dangerous and prevent them from being very dangerous. Uh, and we're not doing that when we play these um, probability thought experiments over and over and over again. So I'm, I'm definitely on board with learning power and arguing about and spending most of the energies um, focusing on the issues at hand. I, I think there's one part of that process where it's approach of critical rationalism of using arguments, critiques of them um, is on its own incomplete is in, in answering the question, what kinds of arguments are valid about how risks should translate into decisions? And this is something that, that's inherently outside of the scope of critical rationalism, since this it tells you to take part in this process of um, arguing and criticizing. And a part of that process of arguing and criticizing, I would think, has to be figuring out what kinds of arguments are valid about risk, what principal ways are there, if any, of turning arguments about risks into good decisions. On that specific point, I, I think expected value calculus does decently well when it's not the main focus by any means, but uh, a broad framework that is arguably defensible, uh, if need be, with weird thought experiments. In one sense, you're right. And in another sense, you are uh, not. Uh, in the sense that you're right, critical rationalism does not say in advance what arguments are valid uh, and it does so intentionally because it doesn't want to put a bounding box around a certain definition of rationalism it doesn't say here are the rules um, by which one must argue because we don't necessarily know in advance what a good argument is and so it emphasizes the critical part of it. It's not persuasive rationalism. Um, it's not uh, argumentative rationalism. It's critical rationalism because the only thing it can say affirmatively is that most arguments are going to contain some grains of truth and some grains of falsity. But that isn't to say that one just can argue in any way um, because there are constraints and these constraints aren't provided by critical rationalism. They're just provided by logic. There are certain uh, logical moves which are disallowed because like, so this can get super abstract super quickly, but if you think of logic as just a truth broadcasting operation, or a set of truth broadcasting operations, that's how I think of it. Um, so I have some statements which are going to assume to be true and moves that are allowed are those which allow me to broadcast truth from this statement, which I know to be true to another statement. So if I say Socrates is a man and all men are mortal, these are two things which I'm assuming to be true. Let me say, therefore, um, Socrates is mortal. And therefore means that uh, it's a logical uh, operation, which given the premises, we can know the conclusion is also true. So there are basic constraints, which are provided just through logic 
um, and human beings have the ability to um, sometimes <laughs> argue logically. And most of the time we don't, but beyond the bounds of, of logic and the trust and mutual error correction of conversation, CR does not intentionally, excuse me, intentionally does not define in advance what the rules of rationality are. All right, fellows, I uh, unfortunately have to wrap it up pretty quickly here. Um, hopefully you've been able to air your grievances a little <laughs> bit. Um, and hopefully the, the audience isn't too confused at this point. But if so, I guess re- would refer them to the series of blog posts. If they uh, if they're with us still at this point, they must be interested in the subject. So, um, <laughs> yeah, they can go ahead and read the blog post. But yeah, any uh, closing closing statements before we wrap up here? Um, I'll say something very briefly, which is just that it was nice to talk about all the stuff in person. I think that one can learn a lot from seeing two different philosophies because um, collide, I should say, because you see two different uh, ways of grappling with the same problem. And so I uh, just want to say thank you for engaging in these uh, series of conversations. Our um, similarities greatly outweigh our differences, and we both clearly value conversation and communication. So I want to end on the highlighting of our similarities, not our differences. Yeah, thank you. I also want to thank both of you for picking this up and for engaging in this talk. I learned a lot from hearing these perspectives and really curious to hear more thoughts and brutal criticisms of my arguments in the future. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'm glad to have you back.